1: Self-employed, small traders, those businesses, they were the ones that voted Brexit. They were the ones that wanted an easing, a lifting of the burdens. And actually, it's from those millions of people that you get genuine
0: economic growth. That, that's what and you, that's been forgotten. But that, that's, at the moment, it seems that we're in the worst of all worlds. This is the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby.
1: Well, the UK is recovering slower than just about anyone from the pandemic. Our GDP is flat compared to where it was four years ago, whereas most countries have recovered from the pandemic and then some. So, why is the UK struggling? Why is growth slow? Why is inflation so high and so sluggish at coming down? The obvious question has Brexit got something to do with it? And does a growing trade deficit have anything to do with it as well? We'll look at all of that today on the Debunking Economics podcast. So how much of the slow recovery in the UK is because of Brexit, because of disrupted supply chains and a, and a lack of labour? So, Steve, the OECD is forecasting for the UK GDP this year is going to be a recession uh, minus 0.4% for the whole growth for this year and only 0.2% next year it's pretty tragic isn't it the euro area they're forecasting half percent growth this year although that you know that will probably be revised down because of course china's uh, not going anywhere they're forecasting china's going to grow at 4.6% this year but that's not going to happen so that's going to impact uh, uh, the euro area because of germany's reliance on china for exports mm. so nobody is doing particularly well Europe overall seems to be in a bad place but the UK is in a particularly bad place. So you look at all of this and you go well okay how much of this is down to Brexit or if we've mm. got a situation where Europe's not doing very well either maybe it really doesn't matter whether Brexit happened or not. What do you reckon as given as somebody who was supportive of Brexit as <laughs> I keep on reminding you su- every time support- we
2: speak. You do. I mean the the re- I mean I, I this is I made the mistake of, of, of accepting the polls. Mm. The polls said it was going to fail. And I thought, okay, I'll whack it in as a protest vote because what I thought I was protesting about was the EU itself.
1: You're just being the usual contrarian. The whatever, usual contrarian. Whatever the tide of and public I opinion it, I mean, is. Holy
2: shit, the vote won? Yeah. Oh God! Okay, mm. and then of course I wasn't at all considering the impact on the UK. What I hope was to be a wake-up call for Brussels. Well, give that so much for that. I mean, be, it would Europe. Europe's. I mean, if this had been the Battle of Trafalgar, I'd now be speaking French. Mm. Okay, it was appallingly badly managed all the way down through. Yes, if I could go back in time, I would not get out of bed. Uh, I'd go and vote on the other side. Yeah, uh, it's absurd, and it certainly has added to the malaise that the UK is suffering from. Um, But it's also a malaise coming out of conventional thinking about um, economics and debt. And uh, one thing I highly recommend people get hold of is Richard Vague's next book, which is coming out very shortly, called The Paradox of Debt. And he makes a point, and it's quite a straightforward monetary point. Money is created by either the private sector going into debt or the government going into debt. And if you have uh, a private sector that will no longer borrow um, for rather good reasons at the moment, because mm. you know, mm. right, how are you going to get a return? Interest rates. Yeah. Uh, and you have a government that's obsessed about not running deficits when, in fact, that's what it should be doing. Yeah. You have well, an that's, economy that You're shrinks. not going to get any monetary growth. I and mean, then yeah. if you then also you hit yourself with a trade sector mm. and the difficulty now of getting goods out of, out of the UK into the rest of the world, um, then yeah, uh, that's... The, the, that's a triple whammy of malaise, and it's no one of the Britons at the bottom of the pile.
1: Yeah, well, but that malaise, uh, I mean, it, people would borrow, wouldn't they, if we saw that the economy was growing? So it's a bit of a secular argument in a way, isn't it, that we're not going to borrow because no, no, it, we're because not going to No, I, I think it's actually
2: at the ceiling level now, and this is, when mm. you take a look at what happened with, I mean, the, 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 the complete lack of knowledge of private debt uh, is one of the main reasons why politicians have no idea of how the economy is actually mm. going to mm. go. Ditto for the lack of awareness about government debt as well. I mean, it's just you, you look at it and you've got two stupid attitudes about fundamental elements of On both sides on of politics. On mm.
1: both sides of politics. There's mm. no
2: way Starmer's was going to reform knowledge of, 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 on
1: the... He's going to be fiscally conservative and he's going to balance the budget. In fact, he's, I think he's probably arguing he's going to balance the budget faster than the Tories are. So, I know, I so know. you and know, look he- at me, I can do it even worse, yeah. faster.
2: I can, I can shoot both feet off at once.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, you know, one, one one bullet rather than two. Um,
1: but is, yeah. is is the whole Brexit thing making inflation? So you touched on it there about supply chains. I mean, mm-hmm. is that? I mean, inflation is that much worse in Britain, and this is supply chain driven inflation. Yeah. So yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. that you can't get stuff out or into the country, uh, and and we've had that extra barrier of Brexit uh, adding complexity and cost. Yeah. Would would explain why we've been sitting around ten ten and a half percent. Uh, as our, you know, as the headline inflation rate, the retail price index got up to about 12.5% or 13%, mm. uh, way worse than most other places.
2: Yeah, and including America. America's mm. looking at hitting back down to 4% even 2% inflation again. Um, so the supply chain disruptions... Uh, 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 they're not out of, they're not gone, but they're diminished in America and most of the rest of the world. The UK, they're still, is still hitting you and have an incredible uh, dependence upon imported food, mm. and uh, and that to me is the biggest biggest worry. And with you know, the climate we face, yeah. Uh, but even
1: the, without that, I mean, you're always going, are always going to have yeah. imp- imported food because you know all the interesting stuff that you want to eat, uh, unless you're happy with turnips and potatoes. Uh, you know, you've got to import food because uh, all the interesting stuff comes from other parts of the world.
2: Yeah, but again, this is you know, the the lack of investment in the UK is mm. ultimately the cause of all of these these woes. Uh, the whole focus upon, you know, let's not spend, uh, you know, let's save money for a rainy day type attitude, as Keynes argued back in the 1930s, that is the widow's cruise. Mm. If, you, if you're spending as somebody else's income, if you try to restrain spending, you're also restraining income. And then that's strange because you are trying to make income grow. So it, it ends up just being caught in the mistake of extrapolating what happens at the micro level to the macro. Yeah. And this, this, you just look at it and you think Keynes would, in particular would be you know, spinning at high speed in his grave because the country of his birth is the one that's most mangling the insights he wanted
1: to communicate. Well, I mean, you don't have to be an economist, do you, to understand that if you want a, a country to operate more efficiently, you've got to invest in infrastructure. Mm. So you've got to have a health service so that people aren't sick. You've got to have the rail service that works. Exactly. Uh, And uh, so you had difficulty getting here today, but mainly because of strike action, because they're not paying the rail workers enough, of course. Uh, And, uh, yeah, and and obviously a road infrastructure as well that's not jam-packed, full of cars uh, queuing uh, end-to-end, or at least provide an alternative, so they don't Mm. have to get in the car in the the first place. So... uh, yeah, that infrastructure investment is happening slowly here, and that's part and parcel of because, again, it's fiscal conservatism. Yeah, it? the can't, other and can't invest in public infrastructure; so that's, that costs money.
2: It, it, that's what's why you know the, the MMT argument I think is so important because uh, it points out the government should be running a deficit. That's what creates fiat money. We live in a we live in a, a capitalist economy with two ways of creating money fundamentally: mm. fiat, uh, which is government spending more than it takes back in taxation, or private debt, which is the banks lending out more than they take back in repayments,
1: uh, and that's fine too. I mean, if, that, if that's creating well, money and it's uh, uh, if, yeah, if, if it was to happen, but, but as we've talked it, about, banks yeah. don't want to take the risk. Obviously,
2: well, we've reached the you know, we back to the level of private debt again. We went from Britain having a, a the, the, the figures the Bank of England publishes have been revised recently, so I've got to change my basic reference numbers. But if you take a look at the data they're now publishing. They're saying that the level of private debt in the UK up to 1982 was 60% of GDP. Mm. Then Maggie Thatcher deregulated housing lending. So rather than building societies alone, you then had banks being allowed. Whammer, We have three times to level of one hundred and eighty percent of GDP. Yeah, uh, over, over about a twenty or thirty. So you can do with you can, do with you can
1: do right, yeah. but you can you can do with some growth in the in, in the. But you, you the, if, the if, if you are if it's there and it's useful debt that's actually contributing to the growth of GDP. Of course, well, but the fact and that, and that better, keeps it's, on it's, keeps it's mainly, on getting up then,
2: it's, it's, it's mainly debt that's gone into pumping up house
1: prices. rather than productive debt. So yeah. productive debt would be yeah, borrowing to invest in a firm or building infrastructure. You know, which can be done by the private sector. Doesn't have to be done by yeah. the Public sector if the private sector sees an opportunity to bang up a new motorway and make it a toll road, then good luck to them, surely.
2: Or better train carriages. The lack of infrastructure investment in general, the lack of industrial mm. development is, is what makes the UK the outstanding failure that it now is.
1: Yeah, because there's no plan, actually. That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. So just on the, the rail carriages, for example, if you are running a rail franchise, which is a crazy idea, but that's where we are right now, although yeah. they are... Bit by bit, being bought back into public hands because they mm-hmm. can't make a profit. But if you were there and you were told, "Well, you've got six years. You're not going to invest a lot in infrastructure without yeah. knowing that the, you know, in, in twelve years' time, you might not be running that train company." Actually,
2: anymore. I've got to put a, a shout out to Abner Offer, who's one of the, my Patreon supporters and a, a fellow academic. Um, I met again at the book launch for Richard Vague's. The paradox of debt at the RSA last uh, last week, and so it wasn't last week. It was a few weeks.
1: It was a few weeks ago now, Steve. You're losing all track of time. Uh, About one week. Two, two, a few weeks.
2: Two weeks. Okay. All right. Pardon me. Okay. <laughs> it's been a busy, been a busy couple of weeks. But Avner made the point. Uh, All we, or we, just record
1: these podcasts quite a
2: few weeks in advance. So it could be that as oh, well. It Could be
1: that. It could you be that as well. How yeah, long true. does it take it's, for you to catch oh my on?
2: Oh God! Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. I go. I've been stuck in the post by, by by a wet, by a dead we're, parrot.
1: We're both exactly. We're both doing quite a bit of travel, so I having a change of
2: break to the ad now, so we can actually make up a little stuff up.
1: No, no, no. we <laughs> well,
2: well, with well okay. it. Don't worry. When I spoke. to... Avner at the, the Richard Faggs book. Weeks ago. Some now. weeks ago, <laughs> Avner made the point that the, the, we 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 have we have a we've always been paralyzed by this debate between public and private sector. Hmm. What should be private, what should be public. You have extremes on, on both sides of politics. The the old left wing uh, communist uh, commanding heights type doctrine that came out of Marx and that was Partly the Labour Party attitude at the beginning of the yeah. uh, the post-war period that basically said as much as possible should be publicly owned. Then you have the the, the Tory, the libertarian Austrian attitude, the, you know, the, the private the public sector should be limited to police and military. If that, if you read Milton Friedman's son, even that he reckons should be privatised. So there's extremes, two mm. extremes. And the real world is a yin and yang of the two. Yeah. They've both got their place. But how do you write the dividing line? And Avner took uh, a lead from something that I first introduced him to, which is the arguments about uh, by John Blatt about um, the payback period being the sensible way that mm. real corporations decide whether so it's to a, invest. So if
1: it's a short-term payback period, then that's okay for the for the private that's right. sector yeah. if, it's, if it's a long-term payback period. Then
2: exactly. Yeah. Okay. So the payback period is the dividing line between whether it should be private sector or public sector. If, a few years. If renewal of, of infrastructure falls within the payback period, of the private sector, then it's okay to have the private sector doing it. Mm. But if you're thinking like rail or sewerage or mm. water, et cetera, et cetera, that's public sector because the payback period makes no sense for the private sector to invest in that. and get So it, all
1: get, of those problems that we're talking about... Yeah, uh, they all come and,
2: down to that issue.
1: Yeah, and it, actually very little to do with Brexit. So, I mean, we can't lay the blame on the state of the UK right now On Brexit. It may have made things worse. Brexit
2: Mm. is a symptom of the stupidity that has meant that Britain's paralyzed itself about investing both by the private sector and by the public for the last 40 years. Yeah. And like I would (laughs) – it would – if only – I mean time travel is one of those wonderful fantasies we all, you know, indulge in, Um, you know, back to the future – um, Star Trek, in the other direction, etc, et cetera. I would love to be able to grab Maggie Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and fast forward them fifty years from when they were saying how wonderful yeah. it was going to be to uh, get you know, reduce the size of the public sector, like
1: the Ghost of Christmas Future, the, it's, exactly. It's, yeah. but,
2: but whack them, pop them in a train, and <laughs> and put you know, not let them see the scenery on the outside, and get them to guess which country they're in. Yeah. And if you put them in a European country, a train, they would guess they're in England. Mm. And if you put the English train that they there in the Europe, yeah. because in their opinion, you know, we've deregulated, we're going to get you know, investment growth. None of it has happened. Absolutely yeah. none of it.
1: So it's understandable, you know, part of the, the, the reason why people were so keen on Brexit. Well, you know, supposedly 52 percent of the population. I mean, mm. I, I'm sure a chunk of those would be tradespeople who saw other tradespeople coming over from Europe, from mm. Poland in particular, uh, offering work for much less. You can't get cheap jobs now, try and get anything done in the house, costs a fortune, because it's going to be done by a good old British worker mm-hmm. charging good old British wages, which they've got to because they've got a pension. They've got a mortgage. They probably want to have a pension. Mm. Uh, they've, they've got to meet the standard of their living and they don't want to work for nothing. Uh, so you know all that work has gone up in price so that will have added to inflation as well of course the cost of everything else Uh, but we've still got a whole lot of people coming into the country it's just they're different people coming into the country so rather than coming from Poland um, we had a record net migration of half a million people uh, net I think it was a million people in total but net half a million people in the year to June last year and of course a chunk of that was because we let people in from Hong Kong and then we did, did the decent thing for Ukraine
2: Yeah.
1: so but of course a lot of that won't be productive immigration you know there'll be people who well maybe from hong kong but probably from ukraine it's 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 mums and daughters isn't it who probably weren't working in ukraine well. uh possibly aren't, aren't working here possibly don't know the language too well uh so um yeah we've we've sort of like said well okay let's take away all the productive immigration and we re- replace it with unproductive immigration which is where we we are now so we're getting to the stage where you can start saying well immigration is a cost rather than actually being a benefit
2: I'm not so sure about that, that argument. But uh, I mean, certainly a major f- source of the appeal of Brexit was the low wages that you get workers coming in from, you know, particularly not just not Central European mm. countries, Romania and countries like that, and the, and that undercutting the wages they saw themselves getting, and and that was a major reason for saying, let's not have freedom of movement anymore. And freedom of movement itself is something which, uh, again, is is a, is a you know it's it 's one of these notions that comes out of mainstream economic thinking that that doesn 't look at the spatial effects of major changes like that, so like there are parts of you know, i 've been through parts of Croatia where villages have populations of zero mm. because everybody 's moved out of the village to the capital and from the capital to other parts of Europe and you get a you get a where where there's growth going on, you get more growth there and it it, it doesn 't cause the spread of economic activity that the 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 ideology argues for. So you I'm you know, I, I can understand the resistance to freedom of movement. Um, but the end result of it has been mm. uh, just economic constipation yet again adding on to the previous sins of, of being the the country that probably most vocally championed deregulation and privatization.
1: And yeah, you know, we do have freedom of movement within the UK. Like if you're in if you're earning Vast quantities of money in the south of England. You are free to move to the north and sign on the dole. If you're in the north, you're free to move and get a job in the southeast because that's where all the jobs three and are. Three and a half
2: times your salary is your rent. Yep. Well, yep. Well, yeah.
1: But I mean, so, so we've what we got get is
2: a price distribution that, that you know means the place is paralysed, and if you're poor, you've got to stay in the regions where you are poor. And
1: yeah. Hence we will. get that. Hence we get that divide. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So freedom of movement within the UK isn't working particularly well, even though it's there and it's open to everybody, should they choose to accept it. Mm. So uh, it's you know, it, 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 just on a local scale, the issue that we're seeing on, on a European-wide scale, isn't it? So mm. I'm not sure if it makes it any worse or any better having that that, that freedom of movement. Because indeed, what it does do is stop the other well, way, the, the, the opportunity the, 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 the other adva- way.
2: The advantage in terms of the European Union and freedom of movement, and the, and the reason why it was argued for, is that... Each, you know, the biggest European country, a population of 70, 80 million people, they're competing against America with 250, or a market of 250 million, and China, you know, over a billion people, mm. and what you get is economies of scale in the firms themselves. That was the reason for saying you want to have a European market and then Philips can sell not just to Holland but to the whole of of Europe and you therefore get capacity to build bigger factories and better economies of scale and so on. Uh, Now, there's a slight flaw in the English argument about that because you've been shutting your factories down Hmm. rather than extending them and expanding them during the period when you were part of the european union
1: well what we're doing is we've switched what was a in effect a domestic market into an international market haven't we so if you were a small scale operator for example and you were making something that you were selling within the uk and Mm. selling within europe as well uh you've got this extra layer of administration now for example you have to register for uh, vat within europe whereas you didn't have to before so Mm. you've then got to do all of your mm. filing of tax returns in in Europe and all the administration costs associated with that, which mm. we didn't have before, uh, because we were all just one big happy market. Mm. So we've shot ourselves in the foot a bit. That in that way. sense, definitely.
2: I mean, I, I was not in. I was in favour of you know, shutting down the European Union from the point of view of the eurozone, mm. the whole focus on the euro, the focus on austerity, uh, the Maastricht Treaty. All those those are disastrous elements of the European vision. But the, the positive element of the European vision was this idea of economies of scale and being able to make Europe you know, co- cohesive enough to have the economies of scale that America and China uh, already had before. It certainly, they weren't thinking about China when the EU was formed. But certainly, America, the idea was to have a European continent market similar to the American continental market, and then with that big domestic market, you could build large firms which could compete with the Americans. That was the the yeah. primary, and that and that's valid. Okay, but on the top of that, we overlaid the auto liberal. Uh, obsession about uh, government, keeping government debt down and keeping def- deficits down. But some elements of the Maastricht Treaty. You, 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 UK had the worst of that without the f- other stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, But some elements of the Maastricht Treaty, even without the euro, perhaps are, are necessary. I want to uh, look at that when we come back. We're going to mm. take a quick break. Mm. It is the Debunking Economics podcast. It's me, it's Steve Keane, uh, recorded clearly a few weeks ago now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, back in just a second.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: Talking about uh, you know Britain better off in or out of the EU. You mentioned the Maastricht Treaty, and even if I mean if it, I mean let's talk about do we go back in now? And if we did go back in, if the UK rejoined, I God, you wouldn't want them to rejoin and have to be part of the euro. Absolutely that would, not. That would be
2: suicidal. They're totally suicidal. The, the, the only good thing the Europe yeah, that uh, that uh, was done by Maggie and friends at that stage, and uh, as well before we formed but was saying, no, we're going to hang on to the pound. And that therefore meant you had an independent treasury. You could have done the right thing, you did the wrong thing by hanging on to the pound at the same time, imposing your own versions of austerity and destroying the infrastructure Mm. of the country at the same time.
1: We got out quite early, didn't we, really, because there was the exchange rate mechanism which was trying to tie all the countries currencies together. We got out of that Mm. because we could see the the, the danger involved in that. But you do need, even even without the euro, if you've got a series of countries that are all competing in effect domestically within the EU, Mm. you do need rules. So you do need some sort of treaty to say, well, hang on, we can't sell stuff. In our country, if your country is your government is heavily subsidising that sector, and we're not, you Mm -hmm. need to have rules so that it's a level playing field, don't you?
2: Yeah, you do to some extent. I mean, uh, at the same time, the American states compete with each other on on the same front, Mm. and I mean, this is one reason that government, when it comes to bargaining between government and the private sector, the governments almost always lose because the private sectors a capacity to play, you know, 50 governments off against each other. If we talk of the American state governments or 20 or so in the European Union, and uh, and that gives them enormous bargaining power. So you you do need to have rules at are at a you know the the national level in the case of America, the supranational level in the case of the European Union to prevent that sort of beggar thy neighbour policies being used by one state against another, which really ends up benefiting the owners of the corporations because they're the ones who get together. The, you know, the, they get the subsidies, they get the the lower tax rates and so on. So, yeah, you do have to have the rules at that level. Just the rules sh- it should have been nothing to do with the government level of deficit spending. Mm. Uh, it should have been a- about, you know, can you uh, – can, for example, can Ireland offer a lower tax rate to Apple to encourage Apple to move to Ireland, well, which is precisely what it did. Yeah. Okay? Now, that, that's the sort of thing you should be banning.
1: Yeah. But they get that away with allowed. it. allowed. Yeah. Exactly. doesn't make a great deal of sense, does it? And then, uh, obviously, the British approach from those people who were, who were uh, arguing uh, in favour of, of Brexit is that, well, the great thing is that we can align ourselves with countries where there is growth. So, getting back to the OECD forecasts, for yeah. right now, the countries that they are saying are going to have relatively high growth this year, uh, Saudi Arabia, 5% growth, India, 5.7% growth, Turkey, 3% growth. OK, you've got to look at the base on some of these. Indonesia, 47 We should be doing trade with Indonesia. Forget about dealing with France just over the way there. Just deal with Indonesia on the other side of the world. So naturally, you know, Brexiteers are saying these are the countries we should be aligning ourselves with. You know, even though these are the same people who said, well, we don't think we should stay in the EU because Turkey might become part of the EU. But hey, now look at the growth we're getting in Turkey. <laughs> we should be doing some trade with them. Uh, so, I, I mean, you know, are we going to get more? I mean, who, what are we going to sell to them? What, what do we sell to Saudi pe-
2: Arabia? Pe- what do they want to buy from us? Uh, well, there's, 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 you, know, you know what a, we're going to buy from them. A lot of human, a lot of uh, Western history relates back to that very question. When mm. uh, with the invasion of China, and people, I, 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 I occasionally have a bit of fun saying, "Do you ever hear about the opium wars?" Mm. Okay, and what? Oh, yes, yeah, that was we were fighting to stop uh, China exporting heroin to. Uh, Europe. I'm sorry, you were fighting to allow Europe to export heroin to China, mm. and the Chinese tried to stop you. So, yeah, there's various times. If you go back to the 19th century, there was nothing that uh, China really wanted of, uh, of, of European manufacturing, especially English. Uh, that's why we call you know, crockery China. Yeah. Okay. It came from China. The best quality stuff by far was the Chinese. There was nothing that Europe had in the other selling in the other direction that the that the uh, Asians particularly wanted. Uh, and that's I mean you've now managed to re- recreate that situation yeah, good, so, 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 in the British, early
1: 21st century. Yeah. A, a British export is the pottery, you know, pottery from the North of England is still a it's still an export from, you know, the Stoke-on-Trent and around there. Yeah, yeah. but if you want
2: if you want, you know, well, for a while, you'd have things like Rolls-Royce you know, jet engines and things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, and you still have to some extent. But in terms of the quality now of Now we manufacturing- make cups
1: for the tea we drink. That's huh? Now we make cups for the tea that we drink. You know, that's uh, you'd expect Britain to, a bit of vertical integration there. We drink tea, therefore, let's make the cups that we drink the tea out of. Uh, but Which you import from China. <laughs> well, yeah, well, maybe not now. We do have a domestic, a domestic business there. But, but... but, but
2: you, you have you, you, again the the Asian uh, economies in the nineteenth. Certainly, China in the nineteenth century, prior to the colonial period, uh, it it missed out on on obviously steam technology and. And you know the, 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 there was a reason the industrial revolution began in Europe rather than rather than Asia, um, but in terms of the quality of manufacturing, they had an advantage over the over the Europeans. Uh, back in the 19th century, and they've got an advantage now. So, so it's very hard to imagine what Britain could export to China.
1: But I mean, uh, maybe we'll sidestep the argument that some modern monetary theorists have that you know actually uh, importing more and exporting less puts you in a, in a good situation. Let's let's take the more conventional thinking that no, that doesn't make sense. We we have quite a significant trade deficit in the UK. So in 2020 to 2022. Sorry, 21 to 22, I think it is. In that year, anyway, we imported $644 billion in goods and services in pounds and exported $414 billion. So that is a £230 billion pound trade deficit. Which is
2: how much of that is a percentage of GDP? I'm not quite sure. That's but got to be, be heading towards 10%.
1: Yeah. Like, so that's not healthy, is it?
2: Not at all. And this is the... You know, you, you know, you know, you know I'm a critic of that particular line of MMT. Mm. Um, if you... you if you don't industrially develop, you're going to lose competitively over time. Of course, climate change comes in back in yet again, but you know, leaving that out, if you if you're looking at the uh, competing against other economies which are technologically advancing faster than you are, you're going to lose. And uh, Britain has been going backwards on that
1: front for forty years. But I, you know, I do hear economists arguing that if you've got a healthy level of imports. Um, then that could be a good thing, so it, it, because it shows you your domestic consumption is strong. So in America, it doesn't seem to be a problem, does it? You know that they've got a trade deficit, but we look and say, oh, the U.S. economy is doing well because they're importing more because they have. Well, the U, um, I
2: mean, you're sitting in a unique situation that it's got the global, global currency, yeah. Right? And the, the thing, I don't regard that as a sensible thing to do. But what it means is you you've, you need American dollars for trade. You don't uh, you don't need British pound for trade. So if Britain is importing far more than it's exporting, then it's ultimately weakening its capacity to produce domestically and it's at, at some point, it may lose what MMT crowds call monetary sovereignty. Sovereignty uh, by not having that industrial capacity. Mm. So, you know, I, I, you know whereas when you the export scale of countries like China is so great, and in Japan it's got monetary sovereignty. So I think there's, you know, that's one part of MMT that I, I think, is based on a silly, on a silly, on silly one-liner line, one rather than a really deep insight which is with the with uh, the modern monetary attitude to government deficits well, it doesn't from.
1: even need great insight to say well actually no. having it doesn't need great insight to think that you know having a, a positive balance of trade is, is a good thing that you're actually making more and selling more than you're consuming seems just uh, common sense doesn't it to most people and yet we obviously are going the other way in britain and it's getting worse so if we compare 2018 to 2022 Exports went from 350 billion to 414 billion, so that's an 18% increase in exports over those years. These Mm. are in nominal terms, so you know, uh, allow for inflation and all of that. But imports went from 489 billion to 644 billion, so that is a 31% increase. So the trade deficit, obviously. Is getting worse, Mm. but as I say, there's some people say would say, well, you know, that look at that, that imports going up by thirty-one percent. That's a healthy economy. We've got more consumption going on. But that's not sustainable, is it, if you're not creating the money from the imports that, you, you, that you're that you putting out there?
2: And that's my uh, I mean, that's my argument. That particular part of m and actually contradicts his arguments about the uh, creation of money mm. and is naive about how factories operate as well. Factories are not operating past capacity. Uh, there's I've people making this opportunity cost argument, including Bill Mitchell, arguing that opportunity cost is a good reason as to why imp- imports are better than exports. Um but opportunity cost applies when you've got a fully employed system.
1: So, what's his argument that if you if you are if you're using money to buy stuff from overseas or using you're, resources, you're sending
2: over pieces of paper and getting goods back, yeah, you know, and they say the, the opportunity cost is all there's quote unquote, from a, a Bill Mitchell. I think that's nonsense yeah. uh, uh, be, be, because what your it argues effectively that you could use the stuff. That you're exporting, if you didn't actually export it, and therefore you've got less productive capacity domestically. Um, that implies a, a sort of a, a neoclassical vision of somebody who's uh, got, got losing something when you sell something for for trade. Uh, you know, you could have used it yourself. You, you sell it instead. Um, you know, losing the capacity to use that productive device for your own own usage. That is a world in which you have. Fully employed c- capital goods, mm. full, uh, full utilisation. It's a neoclassical fantasy. It's never been the real world. Uh, exports enable you to use more of your capacity than you would use otherwise, which reduces your per unit cost and gives you more money for investment and, and, and technological development over time. And you know, that's a major reason why China and Japan and Korea and so many other countries that have industrialised from very low bases over the last 40 or 50 years have run export surpluses because the export surplus finances their uh, domestic development and also means that they're immune from worries about uh, exchange rate volatility. But then, uh, so then, I, you get, then you get
1: then into an argument then for specialization, though, don't you? Because you'd be saying, well, okay, we want to maximize our uh, our, our utilization of, of factories or means mm. of production, whatever it might be, uh, and so you're going to focus on a few areas where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. That's also that's another
2: neoclassical myth. Because again, if you this is where I really recommend people to take a look at the Atlas of Economic Complexity, uh, maintained by Harvard University's uh, Computing Department, and that sh- sh- when you look at it, you find the countries which which grow most rapidly and again the old growth question and that's guys, that a good thing or not? Yeah, I yeah. know, I hate, you know, I get yeah. every time I talk about it now. Uh, but the countries which grow most rapidly have the most diversified industrial structures, not specialised. Mm. Specialisation is a trap. Uh, because but it depends on the size of
1: the economy, surely. So if you've only got a handful, does, a handful that that of factories then that, then that and a small population, then, then you, that, you want that, to get the maximum utilisation out of those factories and that you're going to focus on you know, one or two specific well, industries. That, that
2: right? comes back to the, the, the advantage of the, 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 the free trade zone that the, 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 the mm. European Union created if you've got a large scale to build across and you can build large scale factories and you get economies of scale out of the size of the factory you build for if you're building for a population of 300 million rather than a population of 60 million. So yeah, yeah. that that particular side mm. is, is valid. But Uh, When you look at economies like Germany being the classic example, uh, economies which have grown and developed more rapidly over time, they have had not a specialised industrial structure but a highly diversified one. And the reason that gives you growth is that often new industries come about by combining old industries – yeah, and my favourite example being sailboards. You know, you combine yeah. sailing with surfing, yeah. and bang, you've got a new industry. You've got to have producers making both sails and surfboards in the one to get country that innovation. for that. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's the diversification gives you a chance to expand and grow over time.
1: So, interestingly, you would have thought, well, okay, given all of this difficulty now in exporting and importing, they'll be doing less trade with Europe, and I'm not actually sure that is the case. So, in 2018, the UK exported more than 35 billion uh, to Germany. It's only a little bit less than that that now, but Netherlands has come into second place behind Germany for um exports, and so that sort of add that to the figure and it's There's, there's not much difference. I think that's because uh, the Netherlands now has become a bit of a staging post for the for the rest of Europe, so we're shipping stuff to the Netherlands. Maybe the paperwork's easier there, and then they are re-exporting domestically. So it's changed the trading pattern. Mm. But I think the, the total volume of trade, we're not exporting less to Europe than we were before. It's perhaps just become a bit more cumbersome. But uh, Mervyn King, in his book, The, the End of Alchemy, uh, he says, to explain this to me, an excess of imports over exports has a drag effect on demand. I would have thought, actually, it showed demand was too high. But anyway, uh, he is saying total demand is domestic demand minus the trade deficit. And he goes on to say, and I quote, in order to ensure that total demand matched the capacity of their economies to produce, central banks in the deficit countries cut their official interest rates in order to boost domestic demand. That created an imbalance within these countries with spending uh, too high relative to the current and prospective incomes. In countries with trade surpluses, such as China and Germany, spending was too low relative to future likely incomes. And the imbalance between the countries, large trade surplus and deficits continued. So I'm trying to follow the logic here that if we've got an excess of imports over exports, that's got a drag effect on demand. Explain that to me, first of all. Well,
2: it's actually quite simple, even when you look at this, the, the basic definition of GDP. One mm. says GDP is you know, consumption plus investments plus exports minus imports plus government spending minus taxation. So even the way you measure GDP says if imports increase, GDP falls. Right, okay? yeah. Um, so, um, And when you look again at Keynes' arguments for a post-World War II trade regime. He wanted to limit the scale of of export surpluses. He wanted to have controls on um, access to the international currency, the bank or, Uh if you have if you're in too large a trade surplus then you face penalty rates of interest and you have, you have to to redu- to encourage you not to have too large a set of tr- uh, too, too large a trade surplus and he saw trade surplus nations as actually Uh, diminishing the growth of the economy. So his idea when when he uh, in fact he's the opposite of MMT on that front. He said it's trade deficits uh, uh, he he saw trades attempting to have a trade surplus uh, as being a positive for the country doing it and a negative for the global economy. So he wanted to have controls to stop countries running too large a uh, trade surplus and force trade deficit countries to industrialise more than they were doing. Uh, I think that's the opposite of what MMT is arguing now.
1: And But, but King is arguing here, or he's, well, he's saying what happened. And, you know, he was the central banker at the time. He was the, 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 the head of the Bank of England. Mm. When all of this was going on, when they mm. lowered interest rates down to next to buggery, I mean, his point, he, he's saying, well, yeah, we had this... We have this, this, this drag on demand because of the trade deficit. Mm. So we needed to boost up domestic demand. Mm. So we knocked interest rates down in the hope that that would create future investment that would help the economy grow.
2: What you got instead was um, asset price bubbles.
1: Yeah. So it didn't work, did it? No. But also, it doesn't explain why those countries with a trade surplus would be doing the same thing. Why would they be lowering their interest rates down to zero, for example?
2: Well, because interest rates themselves are not a major determinative investment. Mm. Okay? Again, that's another piece. But of by it. his
1: logic, they are. That's what yeah. he's saying. So he didn't. He, he, he sort of moved I over. I would one. never
2: accuse any a classical central banker of
1: having logic that's <laughs> <is> worth following. <laughs> All right. OK. Well, so, I mean, where does this leave us? It leaves us with the question about was Brexit a good idea or not?
2: Well, I think and, categorically it was a bad idea. Yeah. Okay? Uh, um, and even, even like my my belief was it could be used as a way of t- you know, getting the EU to realize it has to change its own policies. Mm. Uh, it was handled so badly it actually strengthened the EU's policies rather than weaken them. Um, and if, if, if I'd seen the political absurdity that's going to flow after it, there's, you know, I would have been one of the many fighting against it despite the fact that I think the, European, the Eurozone side of the European Union deserves to go.
1: Yeah, and, and if, we, uh, if we stay in the position we're in, are we just going to see our GDP slide because we are going to see that trade deficit, as we have seen in the last couple mm. of years, are we going to see that trade deficit uh, starting to broaden? I think we are going to go back in, you know, I think uh, there was a there was a poll they're calling it re- regret now. Uh, it's rather than Brexit it's regret. Uh there was a poll by PMG polling for the i newspaper. 45% of the electric believe Britain should rejoin the EU. 40% said we should stay out. 14% weren't sure. But if you look at 18 to 24 year olds, 62% were in favor of rejoining, only 15% were against the idea. You
2: know that well I can see coming out of this and I, I hate to this would be a nice note to end the end the podcast on. But I think we can I can quite possibly going back into into the European Union and accepting the euro and abolishing the pound, and that'd be a, a, yet another catastrophe on top of that. That Would others. be
1: the worst outcome of all, the worst, of them, and
2: therefore it's the most likely one.
1: Well, do you know, or maybe uh, you know, in there's a uh, this time it's sensibly debated. You know, maybe Nigel Farage has to leave the country because no one will give him a bank account, and he, he has to stay <clears> out. Uh, and so he's not part of the equation. And so we get some logic being argued and, and, and involving the EU in that logic. And maybe there's other countries aren't too happy about the euro either, like Greece, for example, You, know, all the southern European nations. And maybe the idea that why don't we go back to the way we were? We'll, you know, we'll have a trading currency, but everyone goes back to their, their, <coughs> their original currencies, get the drachma out of the uh, out of the basement, start using that again, and uh, just disband the euro. And Would the be. last 30 seconds are you bought by Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> well, But then if it's not working, it's not working.
2: Yeah, but I mean, we've got so many elements not working all at once. It's a question not of, of which one do you reform, but which one breaks first.
1: Right. Okay. All right. Well, there we are. Brought to you by Walt Disney. Thank you for that. Look, uh, just quickly before we go, mm. uh, and next week, by the way, uh, we're going to talk about uh, house prices. One of your favourites. Oh, yeah. Who, who's who's winning on the high house prices we're seeing? Because I'm not seeing building companies necessarily reporting mega profits. We mm. know it's going to the finance industry. So there's a bit of a spoiler alert, but we'll, we'll explore that a bit more next week. Uh, a couple of people have written in, by the way. So Kristen Watkins says, um, you know, you're doing the stuff over Christmas where you're looking at individual uh, economists. Yeah. Can you do some more of those? I'd like to see Hyman Minsky and uh, Michael Kalecki. Yep. Uh, so uh, we'll push that in a few weeks' time. Yep. We'll, we'll start doing some of those again. Melanie Smith, I'm not sure whether we can do this. I live in Canada, so I'd love to hear an episode or a series of episodes of you both roasting. There we are, predetermined what our decision is uh, on Canada's economic decisions, like corporate bailouts or dismal public transport. Hey, Melanie, got to come to Britain. Uh, airlines... <laughs> Uh, Maybe cover some historical stuff like the National Energy Programme. I feel like Steve will have some strong opinions. Uh, It will also happen to uh, be truths, despite what my conservative province would believe. Uh, I'd love to hear what they've messed up here and uh, how you both figure we could do better. I don't actually we might know
2: drag Tyon for that particular conversation. Right. Yes,
1: of course, because okay. he's over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good yeah. idea. Okay. okay. Well, there I am, Melanie. We'll organise that in a, in a month or so as well. Uh, good to have you again today. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again next week, Steve. Bye-bye.
0: The Debunking Economics Podcast.